Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 78 of Radio 815, the podcast dedicated to examining the work of writer, director, producer J.J. Abrams and his extended Bad Robot universe. I am Matt Crandall, here as always with my co host Marcelo Inestroza, and today we are talking about the long awaited pilot episode of Fringe, which aired on September 9th, 2008, written by Alex Kurtzman, Roberta Orsi, J.J. Abrams, directed by Alex Graves. Marcelo, what did you think of our first foray into the fringe sciences? It's really unique when uh, when a creative person like myself and Matt get to experience a Nirvana moment. And what a Nirvana moment is for me is when two or more of my favorite creatives get together and make something awesome. So coming off of the success of Star Trek 09, when I saw it for the first time, I was absolutely floored. I was I was so engrossed with the episode from moment one. To me, Fringe is like the new, it's like my generation's X-Files. Now, when the X-Files came out, I was a little kid and I loved the X-Files. But in my estimation, the grander story in Fringe is way better than the grander story in The X-Files. We'll get to that way later on. Well, I remember watching this live because I was super excited that J.J. had a new show being a diehard Lostie and not quite in the Alex and Bob camp as of that time, only because I had loved Mission, but they had done, you know, the first Transformers good and then second transformers no so i i remember that you know i was super interested mostly because of jj and when this pilot started and it starts with an airplane i was like hey hang on a second and then we've got the jacchino music that in the first 15 minutes sounds so lost that i'm like all right i'm i'm getting huge lost vibes but it feels like fox said to them we want something to replace the X-Files that was a Fox show, but we want it to have that lost mystique. And they really gave it this lostification that even in the first episode, stuff that we don't know is laying groundwork for much important things later is in the episode, but we don't know what any of it means. And it is cool that unlike certain other shows that try and claim that they had a plan all along you can watch this episode and see that a lot of the plan is in the dna of it and even at like the first time we go to massive dynamic and the observer walks by outside the building i'm like holy crap the observer is in the pilot of fringe like i didn't don't remember that being the case only because I haven't gone back and reevaluated the series. So I am excited to dive back in because the pilot is a very strong episode and sets the tone, has a unique look. And Giacchino's music, while there are hints of Lost, definitely felt in the later part like something a little bit new and a little bit different. So I really liked that we're getting some familiar vibes, but they're weaving it together in a way that feels new and different. And I think part of the way that that works really good is that we get a lot of familiar faces, but I had no idea who Anna Torv was before 
fringe. So the lead of the show was a relative unknown compared to the supporting cast. And I think that helps us dive in much easier to this weird, this weird world with someone we can find charismatic and latch onto, but we don't bring in the same baggage as a Peter Pacey Witter <laughs> Bishop. Yeah. You mentioned, uh, fringe was the first time you, 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 uh, had the grand pleasure of experiencing the amazing actress that Anna Torres. And that was the same case for me. But, uh, if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, fellow listeners, uh, I mentioned a while, while back that I love most of the female characters in the JJ Bad Robot verse, but there's one character in particular that is my absolute favorite. And now I'm happy to say that we have arrived at my absolute favorite JJ Universe character. The character of Olivia Denham is so badass, so vulnerable, and so caring at the same time. It's like, it's like JJ, Alex, and Bob said, you know, okay, we're going to make a, we're going to make a 20th century or, or modern version of, El, of, uh, of Ellen Ripley, but we're going to give her some emotion. I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that Ellen Ripley didn't have emotion, but Ellen Ripley was sort of turned off. Olivia is like Ellen Ripley with emotion turned up to like 20. And um, if I could go back a little bit, the opening sequence, you hinted at it in your opening remarks. The opening sequence of this episode is on a plane. And the direction, particularly in this opening sequence, is fantastic. It's in the middle of a lightning storm. The camera pans up and down the aisles. It, you know, it focuses in on a, on a French woman speaking to a guy who is American who keeps, who keeps saying, I'm from Denver because he, he's trying to explain to her that he doesn't speak French, but the woman is so excited to be on her first plane flight that she doesn't give a damn. We find ourselves, you know, focusing in on this guy having this weird, funky reaction. And all of a sudden he, he grabs a pen from his, from his briefcase and he injects himself with something. He stands up and he runs to the bathroom and then the flight attendant who obviously doesn't want the passengers to be moving during a lightning storm, goes after him. When he turns around, his face is completely melted. It's like something out of a John Carpenter movie. It, it is the most disgusting, grotesque, uncomfortable thing you can possibly imagine. All the passengers are having like this adverse reaction. Their faces are melting. It's going insane. And then as we go to the cockpit, uh, one, of the, one of the pilots opens up the cockpit. He sticks his head off for a moment. And then he turns back around and his face is melting. You mentioned the music. After we see that scene, we hear nothing but silence. And we see an exterior shot of the plane in the sky. And all we hear is these small little notes. Those small little notes are so creepy and eerie that I'm like, oh my God. And then we go right into the amazing opening credit sequence that was done by a 20-year-old. Uh, on on commission from JJ because JJ did write the 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 theme song. Yeah, I like the opening sequence a lot, and I definitely thought that the final shot before we go into the the opening titles was awesome. Where you know we have all this chaos in the plane, and literally that 
co-pilot's jaw is falling off and it's disgusting. And then we just see quiet plane, no sound. And it's just the plane is just still trucking. And we're like, okay, what the what? But then to go into the fringe opening that is such a simple tune that sets the mood. And then as we see all these different weird phenomena listed on the screen, and then the words fringe, the word fringe starts to assemble itself. I think that that was just really cool and really well done. And I think that they chose an interesting font and it just, it sets the tone for what this show is going to try and be. And then from there, we're thrown into meeting Olivia Dunham and John Scott. Now, like I said, I didn't know Anna Torv, but Mark Valley had been in lots of stuff. So at first I'm like, oh, Mark Valley, this guy must be one of the leads of the show. And he's even listed in the credits, not as a guest star, but as a with Mark Valley. And he was he was on Boston Legal just before this started up. And uh, so initially, I'm unsure. Usually it's a telltale sign if you have a scene where two characters are doing it and telling each other how much they love each other out of nowhere. It's either a pilot or somebody is about to die or something terrible is about to happen to them. (laughs) If you're watching an episode of Dexter and we've never seen him and Rita just have a quiet moment together. And then we get this extended love scene where they tell each other how much they love each other. Doom is coming shortly. This was interesting because Mark Valley was a known character actor I was surprised as this episode plays out and he becomes the guy who almost dies and gets infected that we then have to rally around and try and save because he was one of the names on the poster. I'm like, I don't, I didn't expect that he was going to get sidelined so quick and that it was actually going to be about Olivia's rushing to save this guy. The other thing that I had totally blocked out (laughs) is that one of my favorite dudes Philip Broyles is a total piece of shit in this episode. And I I totally forgot that his character was introduced in this way, where he is treating Olivia in a way that would not fly in this year, 2022, because he is taking out his feelings on her and treating her like a nuisance because she prosecuted his friend who was a sexual predator. And as this information is revealed and he's mad that she did this. And that's why he keeps calling her liaison and being like a real dink and a real chauvinist sexist. I was just like, that just shows you how much has changed in just over 10 years because if we're going to learn to like this character, that is a terrible introduction to try and get us on this guy's side or intrigued in him. Because I'm sure even then we would frown upon the way he was treating her and we understand that he is a jerk. But the, the hill he wants to die on is that this sexual predator didn't deserve to get disgraced is not one that anybody nowadays would go, I get it. <laughs> and you mentioned how... In today's politically correct climate, his, Bros's behavior in this opening episode is unacceptable. But with that being said, I really loved the the type of relationship that Broyles had towards Olivia in this episode because it is so hostile that it is disgusting how inappropriate and how and how rough he is treating this woman. 
And you're like, you're like, dude, she, she was only doing her job. And from, from, from what we know, his friend who's never spoken about again is a piece of shit. And you're like, do you, do you care about justice or do you care about your friend more? Right. So, but, but I'm really happy that as the series goes on, their relationship gets so much better and they really learn how to respect each other as they work on these crazy cases that they're going to encounter as we go along here. Yeah. And even by the end of this episode, and that is why they introduced him in such a way, he sees the work that Olivia does within the episode and recognizes that she is talented and that he misjudged her. And so when he says, like, you know, come and work for me, it we realize like, oh, this she must be that good. So it does elevate her and he does show a little humility. I feel like if this was being made today, the only difference would be that we would find out that like we would have a scene where Olivia accidentally spilt coffee on his favorite pair of shoes. And that was, that's why he was being a dick, something superfluous that would still have that same power dynamic where we have to warm up to this guy and he has to be impressed by this woman to soften his stance, but not something that immediately sends a giant red flag up into the air. Like I'm sure. And I don't even, I don't even think I clocked this in 2008. I probably just would have been like, oh, okay. <laughs> and, and now it was like a big sticking point. But I do love that as this starts, and FBI is the main thing at first, where we're just like, this is the FBI. Anatorv works for the FBI. So we didn't know how supernatural things were going to get. And by the end, we discovered that there is more going on and maybe there's going to be a different division that deals with this kind of thing, much akin to the X-Files. But I liked that as we're populating this world with those people and the doctors, the, the main bad guy we thought was on the plane. And then we see him out and about and we're like, what's going on here? And they had a clever way for that to come around. And I just like the way that even the small parts, because the guy who starts this whole incident on the plane and then blows up John Scott was a kind of a nobody. Then he did an arc on Ozark uh, a couple of seasons ago as an off the rails agent and he was fantastic. So it was nice to see a familiar face there. But then as the episode goes, we find out there is one man who maybe knows what is happening here and has not part of the FBI, but he has dealt in weird science stuff before. And I love the conceit that, okay, there is a guy. He's the guy we got to talk to, but he's insane. He is insane. He is at St. Clair's hospital his name is Walter Bishop. He's played by the incredible John Noble. And this is where the FBI bureaucracy comes in because Olivia's like, I got to go talk to this guy because the internet tells me every time I do a search related to what is going on here, everything is coming up Bishop. And they say, well, we're not going to help you because Broyles is still mad at her. So she has to get in touch with his next of kin, played by Joshua Jackson as the charismatic... Peter and I just love that when he comes in, he's in full, he's in full charming Pacey mode, really, right? Like he's doing the he's doing Josh Jackson's thing, and if you're getting a guy like that, don't 
make him be some depressing weirdo. Give me the stuff that I like. And they do. He's a fast talking guy. He's in Baghdad or wherever it is. And he's, he's saying all this stuff and he's smarter than people think he is when he's in a room. And then we find out he's a bit of a degenerate gambler and he's got like a history, but for the most part, he's there to be the grounded wisecracking, but charismatic guy that is the audience's window into this world because everyone else like Walter is all in on the weirdness. Olivia is so emotionally invested that she doesn't question the weirdness. And then we got Josh Jackson. who's like, this shit's weird. Right. And it's like, yeah, this what is going on here? So I love that dynamic. And one thing I do want to say, um, small shout out, to where I'm recording this episode, Guelph, Ontario, which as soon as they cut to the exterior of the asylum, that building is 10 minutes away from my house. That's actually in Guelph. Uh, the exterior of it is the old jail. They most recently filmed Titans season three there, and it doubled as Arkham Asylum, but it was St. Clair's Hospital in the pilot episode of Fringe because this pilot was filmed in Toronto and surrounding area in Ontario before the show then moved to New York for the remainder of season one, before jumping to Vancouver for seasons two to five. Wow, I had no idea that the show primarily shot in New York for season one. The other show, which we're going to talk about on the show at some point, that filmed exclusively in New York, from my understanding, is Purse of Interest. That's really... um unique and, and special because not a lot of Hollywood productions shoot in New, New York because the tax break, the tax breaks are, are other places. You mentioned that uh, Joshua Jackson is in full Pacey Witter mode in this pilot episode. And I would have to agree with you. Uh, but the, the scene that I particularly, particularly like uh, happens a little bit later on when Walter is speaking to Olivia and they're all in the lab, which we'll get to the lab introduction in a second. When, you know, when they're all in the lab and Walter is basically telling Olivia that John has X amount of hours to live. And you're sitting there going, okay, he has X amount of hours to live, but he's not going to die because he's one of the main characters. He's not going to die. And then Walter gives Olivia one last option. And she says, well, and you know, and he says, if I stick something in the base of your skull, you can go into John's mind and physically find the face of the guy that you're looking for to track him down so that maybe he has a cure so I can fix John and I can bring him back. And when Walter starts rattling off all the weird shit that that, that he's going to put Olivia through one of the chemicals that he names is LSD. And I'm like, this show is awesome. This show is goddamn awesome. John Noble's performance as an unhinged psychopathic scientist from day one was on point. It was so, so entertaining and his performance was so energetic. I thought it was wonderful, but the part that really stuck out to me is when Olivia agrees to be drugged up and put in a tank. And, and, you know, and Peter goes, wait a minute, you are absolutely insane. This man will kill you. You are out of your mind. You are insane. Both of you are insane. And I really thought that 
In particular, uh, Peter in this first episode is the voice of reason and is the voice of the audience. Because a lot of things that Walter is saying, a lot of things that is happening in this episode really makes no sense. Because it's a brand new world, wacky things are happening, and one of the brilliant things that J.J., Bob, and Alex do is they, is they don't take any time to explain anything. They just go. So I thought that Peter was an excellent vessel for the audience to, to be like, Peter is us. He, he's asking all the questions that we would be asking if we were there. Yeah, I think it was a smart idea because he's the guy that we all already knew from other shows. So we're going to be instantly identifying with him by casting such an iconic actor. And then they just make it that he's the regular guy. As he says, are you telling me my father is Dr. Frankenstein? Like when he's realizing how out there and crazy it is, it it's relatable and we go with it and it makes the humor that he brings and the interplay with him and Walter all the more strong because Walter having spent 17 years in an asylum is crazy and muttering to himself. And he, he pauses and he looks up like he's going to say something important. And then he's just talking about pudding and you're like the hell. And he's going on a rant about a cow and like, you know, I guess if you need milk, then maybe you want a cow. And when he goes on this talk about LSD and you just see him getting so excited about the amounts of LSD that they're going to have to make, we're like, okay. And Peter's there to bring us back to earth and ground it. Because if you had Walter who gets these hilarious, like he, he steals the show because he gets these great moments where he really gets to say, either wildly inappropriate or wildly weird things as if they are everyday things. And Peter is right beside him to then bring us back to earth right away and call it out or address it in some way that makes a nice interplay between the two and really shows that even though they have not seen each other in a long time, there's some sort of bond or something there. And the the dynamic of them being so different is how we're going to explore that going forward. So I really do like that. And as you said, you know, we've got a ticking clock and we're doing this extreme experiment. And Olivia going in the tank is one of the signature iconic moments of Fringe that would, of course, become a recurring thing where if we need information, sometimes we're going to use this device. And I like that they introduce it right in the pilot. It looks cool when she's in the water and it's, you know, like they emptied a bunch of glow sticks into the tank or something. So I think that it, it established itself as being a device that by the end of the episode, we understood was possible and how it works. It looked super cool and was trippy and it felt plausible that this would be something that they could get this information from. And then a little bit of the alias creeps back into the episode, the JJ, because as Olivia does this, she gets information that then we find out John Scott, who we've been trying to save because he's got this disgusting translucent skin, might not be who we think he is and certainly isn't a straight shooter who we know all, all of what's going on. We may have some sort of mole SD six double cross situation going on because then there's a gigantic car chase when we find out that John Scott is not on the level and he is 
somehow tangled up in the bombing of the storage facility, everything that went on on the plane. We don't know how, but after they, they go through this whole thing, cure the guy, we cure him only to find out then he's a piece of shit who probably didn't deserve to be saved. The first time I saw this episode, and I, like you, I saw it when it first aired. So I'm old. I was watching this when it was airing on Fox in the U.S. I was really, really surprised by John Scott's betrayal. And the thing that made it hurt so much is that the chemistry between Olivia and the actor who plays John Scott, sorry guys, I'm horrible with names, is so good. And after I saw the episode for the first time, I was wondering to myself, why is the chemistry so good? I mean, I understand that they're actors that get paid to do this, but nobody's chemistry should be this good. And I did some investigating, and it turns out that Anna Tor and the actor who plays John Scott were married at the time. So I'm like, oh, this makes perfect sense. Because they played off each other so, so well, and they made you feel their, their relationship in this first episode so, so much, you know, so, so much that when the turn happens, as you say, when John Scott is revealed to be the bad guy working for somebody we don't know, it actually hurts to figure out why would John do this? Like, was his entire plan to get close to Olivia, to make her fall in love with him just because he wanted some information out of her? Or was his feelings for her genuine and he had to wrestle with that? What happens later indicates something else. But at the time, you're thinking, this guy is a, this guy is a, son of, is, a, is a fucking son of a bitch because the only reason that he got close to Olivia was to use her for something or to set her up for something. Even when John, you know, flips over in, you know, in his car and is crawling out and Olivia runs up to him and he says, you know, he, John just goes close to her, goes close to her and says his last words. He goes, ask yourself why Broyles picked you. So I'm like, holy shit, what the fuck is going on here? Because if that's to be believed, Broyles, as I said, is very, is very mean to Olivia throughout this entire episode. And at one point in the episode, Olivia is taken to a little place that we will come to know and love in this series called Massive Dynamic. And Massive Dynamic is this big technology company that's involved in everything. And she has a meeting with its, you know, its executive officer by the name of Nina Sharp. And then Nina mentions something called the pattern. And I'm like, interesting. What the hell is that? We get no explanation. But later on, we, 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 get, an, we get an explanation from Broyles that weird things are happening all over the country. And the government has classified these incidents as the pattern. And then Broyles from out of nowhere offers Olivia the job to start investigating these strange, these strange occurrences across the country. So that makes me believe that despite the way that he was treating her at the beginning of the episode, he wanted her to work for him. Do you think that, do you think that I'm totally out of my mind or do you think that my theory has some uh, credence here? At first I would have said, I don't see it except for the fact that what John Scott says in those moments makes us question everything that we have seen. So then we start to wonder, was it random? Was it really he gained 
she gained his respect and that's why he told her about the pattern and invited her in or is there an ulterior motive and the way that this show has worked showing us we we hear a lot of different things about stuff that we don't know yet so we hear about massive dynamic and we see their logo a few times throughout the episode the md and when we go there we know that there is a head honcho named william bell who looms large over it but we don't meet him. We meet Nina Sharp, who is like the, the second in commit. And so she's the one who, when she lets slip the pattern, you're like, okay, did she say too much? And then you start to wonder, or did she know exactly what she was saying in that room? So you're like, okay, I, I'm starting to question what's going on here. And why are we meeting with this person and not this other person? And then as we get that information from John Scott, in what we think are his final moments where it seems like he's dying and we're like, okay, who can we trust? What is actually going on here? Because we have seen the sketchy FBI. We've now seen some weird rich people. And now we're getting some conflicting information that maybe there is some sort of conspiracy running through this whole thing connected to this pattern. And then when the episode ends with the massive dynamic again and we see them wheeling in john scott's dead body and they're like how long has he been dead five hours okay well we got to interrogate this son of a bitch right now we need to know what happened and you're like oh that's this show okay that's what this is going to be this is a world where death is merely a door and we can still open that door and and go in it wasn't like a weird one-off there's a lot of other weird stuff that's going to be going on. So I like that in the course of 90 minutes, we meet all of these characters and we get a sense of this world that feels on the surface like our world, but underneath there's something really weird happening. And a lot of people are not questioning the weirdness. They are in the same conspiracy or thread with the weirdness. And it's us who just don't see what's actually happening. So I thought that was really interesting. And I, you know, that's most of the, the bulk of the episode, but also would be remiss if I didn't mention Kirk Acevedo as Charlie gets introduced really quick. And Astrid shows up when they are doing the tank and everything. And these are characters that we aren't sure at this moment that they're going to be integral to the show. But as everything moves forward, a lot of these peripheral characters become core central characters that have a lot to do. Astrid, you know, she's not introduced with the rest of the FBI or the rest of Homeland Security on the, uh, you know, on the, uh, on the airplane tarmac when, when, when Olivia goes to the airport uh, to investigate the flight, but she's just, she's just there when Olivia and Peter bring back Walter to see John for the first time. I was really surprised that Astrid wasn't introduced with the rest of the Homeland Security police at the airport. But as we go on in the series, we understand that she is more of a office person and she's not an agent. Like, like you said, one of my favorite characters in the show besides Olivia, because Olivia is my favorite, but my second favorite is Charlie Francis. And I'm going to have so much fun watching him play this wonderful, loyal, just really nice character until something will happen. But 
it is going to be so much fun to watch him play this role. This pilot does a really good job unknowingly setting up the world of Fringe without us even knowing it. Like, like in that one scene, we see, we see the Observer walk by. And I found one scene in this episode, in this episode really, really intriguing. When Peter and Olivia go to St. Clair's to pick up Walter, and Olivia goes, and, and Peter steps in for the first time, and Walter sees him, and he goes, I thought you'd be fatter. And Peter goes, great, 20 years or 25 years, and that's the first thing you say? I, th- I thought you'd be fatter? Anyway, it's a great line. Um, Walter stands up, and he attacks Peter, and he sort of like opens his eyes and look and looks at his eyelids, and he says, your pupils are perfect. They're not dilated. And I'm like, what the, why would somebody do that? And I'm like, at first you're like, okay, he's insane. He's crazy. He's not thinking logically. This scene makes no fucking sense. But I promise you guys, that moment will come back. It may, it may take five years, but it'll come back. And the way that they put that in there made me believe that they had some idea of what they wanted to do with Peter from day one. Yeah, I feel like that is one of the cool things about this show is that clearly in their show notebook or the Bible, as often a lot of shows will call it, they probably had these bullet points that they knew that they were going to hit if they got an extended run. And they might not have had it all planned out. It might not have all been perfect in the end, but there was a lot of things that they knew from day one. If we lay the groundwork and put this weird scene in, then if we are lucky enough to make this show for three to five years, we can throw in something that it'll look like we knew the whole time because we've got this thing in our notebook about what's actually going on and what might be a character's origin or backstory unbeknownst to us and even sometimes them. So I thought that seeing those breadcrumbs throughout was really nice because it shows that a lot of thought and effort was put into establishing the world. And that is the main thing that Fringe needed to do in a pilot, was show that it was going to be an interesting world to tune into every week. It needed to have some sort of J.J. Abrams-esque mystery box hook, because this was near the fever pitch of Lost. You know, Lost started in 2004. This is only four years later, and that you know, between season four and season five of Lost is around the height of the pop culture phenomenon of Lost. So you need those elements to be clear, but they did it in a way that doesn't hit you over the head. They are there if you look for them. And because they had at least some semblance of a plan, they were able to inject stuff into this first episode that might not pay off for 55 episodes. But if you are paying attention, it would. And that's what makes Fringe unique while still feeling like a Fox X-Files cousin. And not I don't say that in a bad way because I love the X-Files and I'm always up for a show that takes some inspiration from the X-Files. But the way that they did this is exactly like, you know, they were inspired by the X-Files but wanted to give it that bad robot coat of paint and Bob, Alex, and JJ in this first episode absolutely did. 
Would you agree or disagree that Fringe, in a way, is is, is the spirit is the spiritual successor to the X Files? Yeah, I I think anybody who says that it's not is for some reason in denial about that fact because I think even the creators would have to admit there are some striking similarities, even if we're not dealing with aliens, we're still dealing with FBI agents exploring the weird on a week to week basis. And as this show started off, a lot of it is more case of the week as the undercurrent of the serialized story is there, but doesn't overpower the episodes in a way that take over and become the dominant thing until later. There is one more scene that I would like to call attention to guys. And that's the first scene when our, our main group, Walter, Olivia, Peter, and I believe agent Farnsworth go into Walter's lab in a basement in Harvard and Walter, you know, sorts of, sort of, um, twicks on the light switch and all the lights start popping and there's, there's equipment all over the place and there's sheets on everything. It looks awesome. It looks like a proper mad scientist laboratory. But I love Fringe so, so much that the thing that Walter says is the, is the piece of audio that I have said by a friend of mine that is put over the, the, the sort of opening credit sequence of my own production company. So that will do it for the pilot episode of Fringe. If you guys have been listening with us, we thank you. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us and make sure you like, follow, subscribe. We are on Facebook. We are on the Twitter at JJUniverse815, the hashtag Radio815. If you want to catch up with back episodes, obviously wherever you're listening to this now is where you can do it. They are also on YouTube. Maybe you're listening on YouTube, but the back catalog is there as well next week. We will be talking about Fringe, Season 1, Episode 2, The Same Old Story, and Episode 3, The Ghost Network. So if you are watching along with us, that is the homework. If you want to reach out to me, I am on Twitter, at Matt Crandall. Marcelo is also on Twitter, and your handle is... CreekFanatic88. Shout out to Agent Dawson. <laughs> they, they do shout out an Agent Dawson in this episode, which any Creek fanatic who was tuning in for the Pacey winner had to clock that. But that's something we will dig into deeper next time. So thanks a lot for listening, guys. Until then, Radio 815 over and out. Radio 815 is a Balloonhead Productions presentation in association with Killer Newt Productions.